going to pray for us, and we're going to be in John 17. Um, we'll be in 9 through 19, and we're going to just dig in. We're going to see what the Lord prays and see how we can be transformed into his image and likeness. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for these people. I cannot do anything up here. I pray that you and your spirit would be present, that you would be the one who transforms. Because I can't do anything, but you can. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And we thank you for that. Bless this time. I pray that we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've been um, leaving these blank because I like having you guys write in stuff. Because I can just have it there, but I feel like if there's a, that little, little moment where you're writing, uh, it, it helps me, right? So we're going to take a little bit of notes, but I'm going to summarize where we're going today. Up front, out of the gate. Jesus' prayer for his disciples is from within and without. Jesus wants oneness and joy for his disciples. He wants them to be in the world but not of it, and he prays for their protection from the evil one. That's where we're going. Jesus' prayer is from within and without for his disciples. It's a summary. Our Savior prays for those who are his. And this should be a wonderful encouragement for us. We talked about three things last week, that seeing who Jesus was throughout the world, knowing who he is through the revealed world, and believing that we have seen and know that he is the foundation for our growth. So we can see, we can know, and we can believe who Jesus is because of his revelation. We talked about Jesus being God made visible, and that's an amazing truth. It's a beautiful truth. It shows us the true character and nature of our God, that God in flesh is praying for his disciples. And this may sound confusing. I understand that this is a complex section of text, that God the Son is praying to God the Father through God the Spirit. But if we get anything from that, please understand that there is a communal nature of the Trinity, and this should comfort us. That there is unity and there is oneness. But there's also this beautiful design that humans are not meant to be lone rangers. But we are designed by God to be in his image in community. Know that this Trinitarian Godhead is praying for his bride, his children, his people. And they are not left alone. They are pursued. God is pursuing them. So Jesus' words matter, and they should give us assurance that we are his, and he cares about us. The word of God is truly carried out by the word of God who is Jesus. I said that last week, and I want to continue saying that, that the word of God is carried out by the word of God who is Jesus. And we see in 
The first chapter of John, this is how the whole gospel started. This is when we jumped into the gospel of John. This is where we began. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the God who prays for his disciples and everyone who will be his and are his now even 2,000 years later in this room. We are going to be in John 17 this morning starting at verse 9 and he says, I'm praying for them. This is Jesus talking and talking about his disciples. I'm praying for them, but I am not praying for the world. But for those who you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Jesus makes his point clear early on. Who is he praying for? Who is the Son of God praying for? The people whom the Father has given He's praying for the people who will be and who are his disciples. Makes this clear at the end of the chapter that he is praying for those who will come to know him through the disciples' ministry. That includes me and you and if we are in Christ today. That is so important for us to get. Romans 8, Paul says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Our God is praying for us, who are his. What a beautiful thing that is. We have these prayer requests, we have these prayer cards, and you know that the leadership of the church, and we're praying during our prayer message, but how much more would it be a soothing balm to our soul, knowing that God the Son is interceding on our behalf. I have to continue hitting these truths. Because if we don't hit these truths, then we will think that we have to be self-sufficient. And it's just like, I keep doing it, I keep doing it, and I'm the reason why this blessing is happening. We're prayerful people here. Know that Jesus is a prayerful God praying for us. He goes on to say that he is coming to his father and he will no longer be in this world. And his departure points to the reality that the fact that the Holy Spirit is coming. He says he will leave. It's also said that the counselor, the comforter, his spirit will come. So he, even though he's praying for us, know that he is never leaving us alone. We aren't left alone. The people who are Jesus's are marked by their relationship. Our religion cannot be divorced from the relationship we have with God. We must understand that this isn't about just doing the right things, but being known and knowing the right person. This happens from being born again, from going from death to life. I know it seems like I repeat the same thing, and I will, because if we think that we can just do this thing On our own power, we don't believe in Christianity, we believe in ourselves. It is a false gospel. We cannot separate the spiritual walk from our Christian walk. We can't do it. Because he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. What? 
the God of the universe, the speaker of galaxies, the one that was before in the beginning was the word, that one is glorified in his disciples? What? To truly glorify Jesus in our life, like it says in verse 10, we must have an idea and an understanding of being born again. Just like the Father is glorified in Jesus' obedience, Jesus is glorified in our obedience. But our obedience isn't just doing things for God, it's being reborn, being made new, going from death to life. Early on in the book of John, we see that this isn't just mere intellectual knowledge. In John 3, we see Nicodemus. He's a wise man, a religious man. He had all the knowledge of God. He was a religious elite. He was high up on the social food chain. He had everything that you would think would glorify God through his life. He was a scholar amongst scholars, a leader amongst leaders. He was well-read, well-studied, wealthy, well-connected. But Jesus told him, you must be born again. This is the true key to entering into the kingdom of God, to be born again. This is how we glorify Jesus with our lives, to be born again. To glorify Jesus takes radical heart change. It takes his spirit. It takes God himself acting. So Jesus' prayer for his disciples are from within and without. Jesus wants oneness and joy with his disciples. Them to have oneness and joy. He wants them to be in the world, but not of it. And he prays for the protection of the evil one. And he wants us to be set apart because of the words that he spoke. We will walk through this and see this together. If you are, are taking notes, I would like you to write within and underneath that, oneness with each other. That's where we're going first, oneness with each other. Pay attention to what he says here in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that scripture may be fulfilled. This week, this text blew my mind. Jesus first and foremost wants the Father to keep the disciples in his name. And for what reason? What reason? So that they may be one, so that they would be united. In what way should they be united? Pay attention. In the same way that the Father and Son are united. That's a profound statement. That's a crazy statement. I've heard it said, and I love this quote, so I'm going to say it today, that the Bible or the Gospel of John, I've heard it both ways, but the Bible is like a body of water in which a child may walk or an elephant may swim. We can read it on face value and be like, wow, yep, 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 that makes sense, that makes sense, don't do this. But then when you say, I want you guys to be like father and son, Godhead, in oneness. Let that bake your noodle. What does that look like? What does that mean? It's a breathtaking statement. So let's just not skim when we're reading the Bible. If we want to really be scripture saturated, let's just not jump to the end. So let's take a moment and ask ourselves an honest question. Are we known as this? Are we known for this? Are we known for our unity, our oneness? 
In John 13, 35, it says it this way, A new commandment I give you, to love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, my people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is what Jesus prayed for. This is what he prayed for for us. Are we united in vision? That what we would do, what we work, will we be together as one? Are we known for unity or oneness that is found in the Trinity? Jesus shows us that there should be a profound unity, and this should be normal amongst genuine believers. Are we united underneath the case of Christ, or are we fighting to be right? These are hard statements. Do we really trust what this word says? Do we trust what this book says? Are we united under the revealed word of God? Do we have a common mind? Do we have a common purpose? Do we have a mutual love? Do we have a comprehensive understanding of what we should even be doing? Are we in this mission together? Man, I work here at Stowe Mission. I'm here on Sunday as salt and light, but I work here at the mission. And we get a lot of groups from a lot of different churches here. And I can enter into this conversation easily. That's one of the cool things about this, is a whole bunch of different denominations and stuff like that comes here. But the one thing I try to enter into relationship with is that if you believe that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection bodily rose from the dead, that you were a sinner, you repent from your sins and turn and trust in him and become a new creation, then I can be on board with you. And then if you believe in that, then guess what? Even if you're a stranger, you're a brother or sister. Even if it's the first time I've met you, you're a brother or sister. Even if you are in Iraq or Iran, if you're in India, if you're in New Delhi, and you are a believer of Christ and don't speak my language, you are a brother and sister. We are united in that. We are together in that. We have to be because Jesus commands us to be. Jesus and the Father are united in a way that we should be united like. It was very clear that the father-son relationship was characterized in Jesus' own ministry. Jesus moved because the Father wanted him to. Jesus spoke in this unity, the mission that God had for him. When Jesus spoke, the Father spoke. When Jesus drew near, the Father drew near. The sense of oneness that we need to see is what Jesus is praying for right now, the, the oneness that we see here. Think about even the reality that Jesus, what Jesus calls the church. Like, right, we, we can get into Christianese and forget these things. So I don't want us to forget these things. But the reality of the church, we're called the body of Christ, right? Body of Christ. The body has to work in unison to work together or we won't get anywhere. Like imagine if one leg was trying to sit down while another one was trying to take a step. Or imagine if you're trying to grab a door and your shoulder won't bend. This all makes sense, but Paul puts it perfectly in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, there is one body but many parts, but all, it may be, <clears throat> but all its many parts make up one body. This is the same with Christ. 
We are all baptized by one Holy Spirit, and we are so formed in this one body. It didn't matter whether we are Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people. We were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not made up of just one part, but many parts. Suppose the foot says, I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. By saying this, I cannot stop being a part of the body. And suppose the ear says, I am not an eye, so I don't belong to a part of the body. By saying this, it cannot stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it smell? God has placed each part in the body just as he wanted it to be. If all the parts were the same, how could it be a body? As it is, there are many parts, but there is only one body. Jump down to verse 26. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part shares the joy. You are a body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. The body is one. We make up all different parts. Our Lord prays that we would be one, united. And that's my prayer as well. That we should have unity of purpose, that we would have unity of love, that we would be comprehensive in our understanding of what we should be doing. And once we know this, we must be in this mission together. So what is our mission? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to be united in? We have the great commandment and the great commission. Love God, love people, teach others to do the same. To love God properly, we have to understand our relationship with him, that we were treasonous traitors, hell-bent on destruction. We have to repent and turn. To love people, we have to see that God has came into earth to offer redemption, and we see people as imago Dei, fancy word for image of God, created with unique purpose. And we teach others to do the same. That means we have to be well-read, well-versed, reading the words of God and living it out in visible, tangible ways. We must be united in the fact that we are sinners who have our debt and it must be paid by God who put on flesh. Or we pay for it ourselves. And if we truly believe that, guess what it doesn't lead to? If we truly believe that we are treasonous traitors and sinners, Guess what that doesn't lead to? It shouldn't lead to pride. I was saved by grace. Shouldn't lead to boasting. I was saved by grace. Shouldn't lead to arrogance. I was saved by grace. It can't. You were saved by grace, not an intellectual ascent, and it's not out of book knowledge that you were saved. It's because God chose you, because God redeemed you, because God adopted you. He gave himself over to his son. And this is where the unity and oneness should lead. And jot this down. This is fun, right? So the next little point I'm going to make is joy through him. Joy through him. So we have unity or oneness and then joy. And he says, verse 13, But now I'm coming to you, these things I speak to the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy should be an expression of a Christian as well. I know, crazy idea, right? I know I've asked you, are we known as a people with unity? Are we known as a people who are unified? On the same side of the coin, are we known for joy? True joy comes from living out our true purpose with a true understanding of what you were created for. I know this is a blanket statement, and I understand there are chemicals in the brain that can cause depression, anxiety, inhibits feelings of joy and happiness. I know I know this stuff. Believe me, I deal with anxiety 
I deal with depression. I understand that. And if you do, I know you're not alone. But what I am talking about here is as a general rule, when humanity has purpose and meaning and tasks to do, generally it leads to a more joy-filled life. We know this on the small level. We know this on a little microscopic level. We can see this all throughout science and literature. If we're just focused in on what we need to accomplish, if we have a goal set out in front of us and we move towards that goal, guess what? We can go and do this thing and we might feel momentary happiness. You know, a Christian life should not be boring, miserable, and just blah. It's a reality. It's the reality. I don't know why people are so quick to think that if you have joy as a Christian, you must be doing something wrong as well. Right? John 15, he says these things. These things I have spoken to you. That what? This is Jesus talking, our Savior. My joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's what he says. These things I have spoken to you. So what Jesus is speaking to us is for our joy, for our benefit. God of the universe doesn't want to rob us of joy. He doesn't want to take joy from us. He's showing us the life that is necessary and the relationship that is necessary to have true joy, true hope, true freedom. He wants us to have joy. In fact, he prays for it. He prays for unity and joy. Our purpose for existence is to make God known throughout the entire earth. So if we go all the way back to Genesis, God created man and woman and placed them in the garden and gave them jobs to do. This is how it starts. They were to tend and keep the garden and they were in fellowship with God. They were supposed to expand the garden's borders. They were gardeners. It's really a baller picture. Fellowship with God, expanding. They were to subdue the land. That was their mission. They were supposed to expand paradise, what is known as Eden, to the ends of the earth. They were God's ambassadors. I want you to think about that for a second, because we are God's ambassadors now. The Webster's of ambassador means a diplomat sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. Remember, us, Holy Spirit comes in us, we are made portable temples. Portable temples, right? So if anybody is far from God but close to us, they're close to God. So now we are these ambassadors in various areas wherever we're at. Wherever we're at. I don't care if you're in Parsons. I don't care if you're all the way up in Michigan. I don't care if you're down in Florida. If we have the spirit of the living God wherever we are at, God's presence can break in there. It's an amazing thing. And this is our task now. Because we are ambassadors now. And for us to have joy-filled life, we must be in relationship with the Creator. We must be listening to Him, what He says. We must know what He reveals through His Word. And we know this. I keep going back to earthly like viewpoints because we know this in our own life, but we choose to not believe it when it comes to Scripture. We understand for a car to run correctly, you have to consult an owner's manual to find out how many miles you should change the tires or how often you should change the oil or how often gas should be put in it and when the tires should be pumped up. If we should run correctly, we have to be in relationship with God. We need to learn from him. See what all this life thing is all about. 
And the Bible isn't just a list of do's and don'ts, but it's a book that reveals to us who God truly is, what he truly knows about It just blows my mind. We have a book, right? We can talk about the history and how the canonization of that, but for a second. Think about the reality of God wanting to... He created a people, wants to reveal himself to a people, and how do you reveal yourself if you're an infinite being? And then you use word and languages... And then you make these word pictures, and then you send a visual representation of your son, of yourself through your son, and, and he comes in, and, and we see who God truly is. Like, this is what life is truly about. This is what hope is truly about. Like, what salvation is truly about. Like, Last week, we talked about Jesus, and his name was given, and it was to be above every name, and his name is Yeshua, I mean God saves, God delivers. We learn a profound thing about our God from just the name of Jesus, mind-blowing. We can understand who God is and what he has accomplished and what he's doing. We can, right now, as mere mortals, <laughs> right? We had coffee and donuts this morning, and we can also know the infinite creator. That's a mind-blowing thing. If there is one thing that I really hope that gets stirred up in you guys is a sense of wonder, is a sense of awe is a sense of being mind-blown and allowing your faith to be childlike, to be able to look out and be like, my goodness, what an amazing thing. This stuff is mind-blowing. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But if we don't know who God truly is, how can we love people if we don't have an accurate representation of what love even is? How can we teach others the things of God if we don't even know the things of God? This is why here at Salt and Light, Scripture saturated. Repeated, 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 repeated. We must be Scripture saturated. So Jesus' prayer for oneness and joy for his disciples, that's his prayer from within like the new church that is being created, the new body, the new fellowship. He's praying for that. But for us, we need to strive to stay on mission with joy in our heart. We've been purchased if we trust in him. But Jesus doesn't just pray for the elements within the body. He prays for things without. And if you're still taking notes, you can write without. And one thing I want to touch on is that the kingdom of this world is different from God's kingdom. So from without. Verse 14 says, I have given you, I have given them your word. And the, word has hate, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I think this is one of the most helpful and underrated truths found in the Bible. 
I know I say that quite a bit, but here's the reality. The kingdom of this world is different than the kingdom of God. All right? The kingdom of this world is going to hate you. All right? It's not looking out for your best interest. It's selfish, self-seeking, self-aggrandizing, and wants to take. That's the reality of this world. The kingdom of this world will hate you, and you're not going to please it. We are in a different kingdom. Especially even in the West, right? Like, we see the kingdom of this world in very practical ways, right? There's independence, self-sufficiency, arrogance, pride. We see that and we're like, yes, that makes sense. But you know what's really countercultural? Turning the other cheek, right? Loving your enemies, that makes no sense. Why would I do that? Praying for those who persecute you. I mean, this week I was chewing on and reading Matthew 5-7. through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to get a good picture of ethics from a Christian perspective, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. Do you know that looking lustfully is adultery? Anger, murder. That's anti-world. That's anti-this world. So we should find peace and joy in the fact that this world will hate us. Jesus says they will. We're not going to gain anything from this world. We can't take nothing from this world anyways. Nothing in this world has eternal value, right? All riches, moth, and rust will destroy. That's the reality. But us making Jesus visible here and now, being joy-filled, being unified, that has eternal impact. If you know the world will hate you, and you know that worldly success isn't the goal, does that or would that free you? It's an honest question. I'll ask it again. If knowing that the world's going to hate you and that worldly success isn't the goal, does that free you? Does it give you hope? Like it kind of does for me. Because my goal isn't the same as the world's goal. Paul says, food, water, with these I'll be content. Legitimately, I feel that way. Not all the time, but majority of the time. This world is a part of a fallen reality. We are living right now. But this isn't the end of the story. We will have new bodies, and the earth will be free from sin, and we will walk with God. But in the meantime, there's an enemy out there. If you're also taking notes, Jesus also prays that the disciples would be protected from the enemy. So, from the evil one, if you want to write that down. Verse 15, it says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that they are not of this world. There's two things I want to talk about with this. They're not of this world as I am not of this world. Two things. Got to get. We are not just physical. We may have bodies, but we have a spiritual side. This is what this is talking about. As Christians, we cannot divorce the fact that there is a spiritual component. That we are in active war. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Regardless of what the world says, our enemies aren't Democrats or Republicans. It's not rich, poor, white, or black. 
but we are in a true spiritual war. And the enemy makes war against the saints. And Jesus knows we are at war. And he doesn't want us to take part in the world's schemes. And why is that? Why is he praying against the evil one? To not be associated with the evil one. You know another name for the evil one is the father of lies. This is the biggest assault on Christians is lies. This is what we see Eve getting tempted with. It's not understanding the true nature and character of God. It's misrepresentation of him and his words and his commitments and who he is and his nature. This is why we have to be scripture saturated. Not to win a verbal argument, but to guard ourselves from the enemy and the world who constantly are telling us what truth is. Truth matters. The enemy will steal, the enemy will kill, the enemy will destroy, and his main offensive weapon is deception. And he will tell you that right is left, left is right, everything's fine, and the sky is red. And he will leave you believing that, and we will do everything in the world to get you to believe those lies. He will do everything in the world to get you to believe those lies. We have to be scripture saturated. Not only will it help us with unity, we can't be unified if we don't know what this book says. But it also helps with joy. We don't know what to be joyful over if we don't know what to be joyful over. But also we can see the kingdom of this world. We can see how it moves. So our biggest weapon isn't nukes or firearms. It is truth. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And believing this truth will make us look different from the world. It will make us set apart. And believing in this truth in a world of lies will make you look strange. And Jesus knows this. This is why he prays for them. And this is the last part, is set-apartness or sanctification. He says, sanctify them in truth, and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays that his disciples will be sanctified in truth. And now we talk about sanctification as a, a, a fancy word for being made more and more like Jesus. But the idea here is more and more you become like Jesus, the more and more you are set apart. Like this is the term holy, where this comes from. So you're set apart. You'll be set apart from the world and its systems. The more you become like Jesus, the more alien you will look. As Christians, we should look different from the world. To have love for one another, to be joyful in the face of our trials, and to have perseverance in this world should set us apart. Jesus says, set them apart in truth. And Jesus' words are truth. Jesus speaks these words. He lives these words out. He is the embodiment of truth. So how can we carry out the Lord's mission in this world? How we do that is through sanctification. True freedom comes by a right understanding of the relationship we are in. So when Jesus says sanctify them, there are two parts. One, make holy. Two, to set apart for service. And as we keep reading, we see where sanctifying comes from. It comes from the word. It comes from the word. Hear this repeated over and over again. We have to be in the word of God. We must be scripture saturated. 
The word helps us conform to the right way of living and the right person of worshiping. Because we're all worshipers. We attribute worth to whatever we value. If it's money, we worship money. If it's materials, we'll spend our life trying to acquire possessions. That's why the word of God is so important to the mission of God. Scriptures will keep us grounded and unified and one, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will equip us for this mission. Jesus himself was set apart for service, meant, and he did this by taking on human flesh. By taking on human flesh, he did not cut himself off from the world. He was in the world, but he wasn't of it. He came into the world to save it, and he did it by the cross. And sanctification for you, church, Christian, is a lifelong process, and it involves both a relational component and a fellowship component. We must be unified. We have to be in fellowship. We have to be in relationship with one another. This is the way God has designed it. Jesus, through this prayer, lets us know that he embodies truth, that he is the standard of truth. He is the litmus test which we must take everything to and test it to. Everything must be compared to him. Jesus' life is our standard for us. So the question I want to leave you with as the body of Christ, as the beloved, as my brothers and sisters, are we here in this room? Don't think, yeah, I know that one guy down there. He's not doing that. You. Take ownership. Are you seeking gospel unity? Or are you seeking division? Or are you willing to put aside your preferences to carry out the Great Commission? Are you committed to the Great Commandment? Is God's mission of redemption and reconciliation of the fallen world around you your mission? Are we doing this with joy? You should have joy that you were redeemed and restored for a purpose. Are you so worried and concerned about what the world thinks about you, around you? The world will hate us. And that's okay. Mark 4 says this, that the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of many things come up and choke the word, making it unfruitful. This happens to believers. It happens. Let us not be choked out by the cares of this world. The world will choke us out, but the word itself will produce fruit. And the world is ruled by the father of lies, the evil ones. We can't trust him. So where are we looking at for our source of truth? We will be sanctified through the word. We will be set apart, but we will be set apart together as a community, doing life together as a church, with God as our head, us as the body, and the King of Kings is praying for you. This is a glorious truth. This is an encouraging truth. So let us have assurance to carry out the mission that he has given us. 
There's nothing else in this life worth living for. I want to, I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion. Um, Father, let us not make light of sin. Let us not make light of pride and arrogance. Let us not hold bitterness to brothers and sisters in the faith. I pray that we would repent from that and turn away. If any brothers and sisters have an issue with somebody here, I pray that they would repent before taking communion today. Let us not make light of our king's sacrifice. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus as your king and savior, I pray that you would today trust and hope in him today. Father, you are in the business of reconciliation and redemption because why would you pay for sin? Why? unless you wanted to have people redeemed and restored. Why would you send Jesus into this world as a name of God delivers unless you wanted to deliver? Father, I believe in your name. I pray that we would be a joyful people, a hope-filled people, a happy people, Understanding that this world is falling away and we are not eager to run out of it. But like paramedics or EMTs, here to help. Let us be united in the mission. Let us not argue over silliness. Like colors of paint or X, Y, and Z. But let's be united. Father, teach us to be united in this church. Teach us to be kind and loving and gentle and countercultural, but bold and strong because we are not fearful from the world at all. It will pass away and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We will get new bodies. Death, sin, sickness will be no more. And on that, we hope. Jesus, be with these men and women. Fill them with your spirit. Fill them with your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.